0: Receipts live show at Tudum.com slash W-H-T-R. That's Tudum, T-U-D-U-M dot com slash W-H-T-R. Tickets are limited. If you can't make it to the show, we still want to hear your beautiful voice. Leave us a message at speakpipe.com slash we have the receipts. You may even hear your own voice on the show. Grab a ticket at com slash W-H-T-R. And we'll see you on May 4th in Los Angeles. Bye, cashiers.
2: I'm Rebecca Lavoy, and this is You Can't Make This Up. You Can't Make This Up is the podcast where we uncover the true stories behind your favorite Netflix documentaries and films. On today's episode, we take a closer look at the Andy Warhol Diaries. He always wanted to be
1: at the center somehow in this fantasy world of fame and of notoriety and acceptance, but he also wanted to be the center of the
2: art world. It's like he wanted too much, maybe. Today, we're talking to director Andrew Rossi. This breathtakingly expansive six-part portrait of a legend chronicles the remarkable life of Andy Warhol from the intimate vantage point offered by the artist's own posthumously published diaries. Though intensely protective of his personal life, beginning in the 70s, Warhol dictated his observations to a typist over the phone. They capture his thoughts about his secret loves, his personal struggles, and his professional self-image. The Andy Warhol Diaries employs cutting-edge AI technology that recreates Warhol's own voice to narrate his own words.
0: Movies make emotions look so strong. Whereas when things actually do happen to you, it's like watching TV. You don't feel anything.
2: Andrew Rossi, welcome to You Can't Make This Up.
1: Oh, thank you so much for having me.
2: Why did Andy Warhol appeal to you as a documentary subject? What is your relationship with him?
1: Well, Andy Warhol was famous for his line that in the future, everyone will be famous for 15 minutes, famous for pop paintings of Marilyn Monroe and Liz Taylor that feature vibrant colors and repetition and the silkscreens process. But not a lot of people know about his personal life. In fact, he appeared in public as a sort of asexual robot. And I thought it would be really fascinating to understand the human behind the mask.
2: So they are called the Warhol Diaries, but I mean, they're kind of not really diaries because this was Warhol dictating his daily thoughts and feelings and doings to Pat Hackett over the phone. How did that work? And do you have any sense of why he did that?
1: Yes. Andy started keeping the diary as a record of expenses in the early 70s after he was audited by the IRS. And Pat Hackett, who ultimately became the editor of the diaries as a book, was at that point an intern who um, was at Columbia uh, University and would come to the office at the factory and collate all the receipts and and record these. but. Afterwards, Andy started sharing with her over the phone his experiences the night before, you know, went to a party and spent this much money on drinks um, and did these different things, spoke to these people. And over time, this conversation evolved into something like a, a therapy session, um, almost a confessional. Andy was a, a Byzantine Catholic and he he started sharing incredible, uh, intimate stories with Pat. And that's what became the Andy Warhol Diaries.
2: So in order to convey diary entries into a documentary, uh, you need a narrator. You used AI technology to recreate Warhol's voice. And now before I ask how you did that, can you tell me about why you did that?
1: Yes, I, I did it because... Again, we know Andy through press interviews and archival footage that sometimes perpetuates this coldness, this distance from him. And when you read the diaries in his own words, they have his particular cadence and his way of talking, which is very unique. We sat for hours and hours at dinner. It was
0: perfect, lots of drinks. And dinner was everything
1: creamy that I'm not supposed to eat because of my gallbladder. But it was so good. In reading them, I felt like he was talking to me directly. Like I was hearing him in my ear, almost like when you listen to a podcast and you get a real sort of special connection to the speakers and the material. And so I felt maintaining that in the documentary form would bring people closer to him. That, that the sound of it would be as important as the visual. So... Using an AI uh, algorithm, I was able to basically clone his voice um, and then work with an actor, Bill Irwin, to deliver that in an organic form. And so the fusion of this, the, the interpolated model of AI and Bill Irwin um, produced the final voice that I hope makes you really think only of the raw, pure Andy Warhol and not you know a famous actor who's coming in the middle of that relationship.
2: Was there some fine tuning? Like did it sound right the first time or did you have to play with it for a while?
1: You know, it, it's really extraordinary because I always had faith in this approach, but when I go back now and listen to the first um uh experiments with the robot voice, it was it was pretty crude. Um yeah. and so, you know, and, and certainly it, it's a pr- iterative process. It takes a lot of um, you know, Retakes an effort to smooth it out. I think the the real next level uh, form of progress was when Bill Irwin performed. He's an incredible character actor, um, and he gave it a special um, humanity. Um, but then, resemble AI, the company was able to graft the the data set onto that so that it sounds like Andy's Pittsburgh accent. <laughs>
2: Well, I think that Warhol's inflection, his speech pattern is kind of uniquely suited to this technology. Does that make sense?
1: It makes total sense because, you know, Andy always wanted to be a robot or <laughs> he had himself made into one yep. and, or he wanted to be a machine as well. And he spoke about the fact that machines have less problems. One of his classic lines that's sort of half funny, but also half true. I think Andy had a very sensitive heart um, the diaries present his queer longing in a very um, emotional way, um, and something about the the protection, the armor of of being inside of a kind of mechanical um, box, appealed to him. Life gets more exciting every day, but then I have to go home to my horrible home
0: life, where the situation with Jed gets worse every day. I mean.
1: You think about a person constantly, and it's just a fantasy. It's not real. And so there's something about his flat voice that lends itself to an artificial, um, mechanical type of rendering, and, and I think that comes through.
2: Hmm. The series focuses largely on Warhol's life and career during the period he was keeping the diaries. His earlier life and career are covered, however. So what was Warhol's reputation like in the mid-70s, which is where the diaries began?
1: So Andy was shot by Valerie Solanus in 1968. And after that, um, you know, he was he was pronounced legally dead on the operating table after the shooting occurred but in the years that followed that shooting, he really retreated. He um, had a, a corset that he had to wear. He had tremendous scarring and and was sort of physically weak. And then I think, as reported by those who were part of the factory scene, um, was tentative in returning to painting. So he pivots to doing celebrity portraits and, and commissions. Um, which was considered um, anathema in the fine art world. Like to 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 be considered a, a serious artist and to be getting paid by celebrities to do their portraits was just not um, acceptable to to the art establishment. And so, in, by the mid seventies, some folks are are thinking that maybe he's a has been and his hmm. greatest period is is over. But what I believe and and what I think the diaries show is that he was doing work. That wasn't getting exhibited that was actually incredibly important and reveals so much about his aesthetic sensibility and also his personal interests.
2: Well, there is this tension throughout the series. It's a theme that there is this criticism of him being very commercial, you know, producing lots of different kinds of work, being everywhere. By the way, the clip of him on the love boat is incredible.
0: (laughs) Mary tells me that you want to paint her picture. Well, that's impossible. Uh, It's nothing personal, Mr. Warhol. It's it's just that we come from two different worlds,
2: you know. And making these varied, mass-produced things—you know, the thing with Farrah Fawcett coming in, for instance—but right now, today, this is what every artist does. You know, musicians have clothing lines; artists make things for commercial spaces. So Andy Warhol was way ahead of his time, and isn't it strange now to watch that criticism play out in the in the past?
1: Absolutely, it's it's so ironic that he took the brunt of the shock in the system to accept that a, that a painter could be both a serious fine artist and also a commercial actor. Um, and he sort of invented this idea of the multi-hyphenate artist whose brand extends to fashion and visual art and music and film and television. You know, at the time, people wanted everyone to sort of stay in their lane a lot more but Andy understood that not only could one creatively expand their horizons by going into different media, but it was a form of protection as well because one could sort of hedge into different forms of productivity.
2: Yeah. I mean, in the 80s and 90s, if a musician had a song in a commercial, they were called a sellout, right? So it really, it shows how the world has changed and it shows how he changed it a long time before it changed, which is extraordinary, uh, the output that he had. So, even going through the diaries, Warhol remains kind of a mystery. Um, for one thing, he's seen as a gay icon who moved through gay society, but he outwardly portrayed himself as asexual, which some saw as a mask of sorts. So, what is your view of his sexuality and how he was portraying himself at the time?
1: Well, what the diaries show is that Andy had a vivid gay sex life. He was a domestic partner with Jed Johnson, his boyfriend of 10 years, who slept in his bed. Um, He, after they broke up, was um, in very intense pursuit of John Gould, who became his boyfriend and also moved into his townhouse. And he explored the themes of homoerotic uh, representation and love in the sex parts, Polaroids, which are extremely explicit men um who would come to his studio um after nights that he went out to studio 54 and pose naked um and you know they they simultaneously look like pornography but also like art and and they kind of um have been forgotten like so many other aspects of his queer life and i was really determined in making this series to Consider those works and his personal life as being um, a a really important factor in understanding why he made the work that he did and how his his romantic pain and his romantic pursuits inspire so much of, of his life and his artwork.
2: He does walk around, though, with this shell, this like physical shell, sort of like the masks that he puts out there in all sorts of ways. And there are some things that hint or more than hint at self-loathing. He hated, it seems, his own looks. At He starved himself at points. Uh, what was that about?
1: Andy suffered, I think, from a deep shame about his physical looks and also his sexuality. He grew up in a time; he was born in 1928, when living life as an out gay man was illegal and considered by the DSM, you know, the the uh, psychology at the time, as being an illness. He was a practicing Catholic and went to a Byzantine Catholic church that viewed homosexuality as completely immoral and taboo. Um, all of that added up to an intense. Vulnerability that he sought to um, protect with a performance that was that was quite genius, though. So in a way, all of those obstacles really drove him to create this approach to life where he wanted to transform himself. And that's key to understanding his artwork as well. Some of the greatest works he made are about transformation um, and an aspiration through the language of advertising. To be a somebody with a body—that's one of his great paintings—or to make him want you; these are advertising slogans um, in works that he created on canvas that take the the commercial language. And if you read them from the lens of his self-loathing and and feeling like he's inadequate, actually show um, a really interesting way to um, to to go from before to after.
2: Hmm. It's funny, though, because there are moments where, I mean, he's he's such a chameleon. Really, I mean, I don't know if you saw this when you were putting the film together, but there are times where he looks like a completely different person. Not just because he's wearing different clothes and, you know, different makeup and different hair, but facially, he seems to transform throughout his life just from year to year. Did you, did you see that when you were putting this film together the way that I did?
1: Yes, that's that's such a remarkable Inside, I'm so glad you caught that because, of course, there is, as you say, there are the the different eras of Andy, with like the black leather jacket in the '60s, or the Brooks Brothers blazer in the '70s, or the silver jacket um, later in the '80s. But you know, one of the fascinating things in in making this, and I, I wrote these scripts to combine the diary entries with uh, particular archival materials. You can see that the day before maybe a Diana Ross concert or some event that was photographed, he had a fight with with John Gould or some other great disappointment occurred and his face literally registers the pain Um, or that he says that he had a big modeling job because he became a male model um, and he suffered from anorexia and, and, and feelings of dysmorphia and would um, not eat. And that would then also register in the way that he looks. So it's absolutely true that he sometimes, Looks happy or sad or or you know emaciated and and those I included a lot of those in order to act, accent some of the stories that are in the diaries.
2: So Warhol's life is defined by some key relationships during this period. Um, Let's start with Jed Johnson, who's a really important figure. Um, What is your view of their relationship?
1: So Jed um, is described as basically um, the nurse who came to help Andy after he was shot by Valerie Valerie Solanas, and... You know, it, it 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 falls into this the, the the patient who falls in love with the nurse type of story. It's 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 epic in its in its archetypal relationship between Andy as this person who's fragile and Jed as a sort of angelic figure who's helping him, and then slowly but surely they fall in love. He just said Andy wants me to come because he needs a lot of help, and that was basically it. And then you know he never came back, so. <laughs> It became, I guess, the classic love story of the nurse and patient falling in love. And, you know, Jay Johnson, Jed's twin brother, says that that love was authentic and, and real, that they did share a bed and that they shared a special relationship. So that's sort of like the, the gold standard for Andy's romantic uh, connections. And everyone else sort of gets measured against Jed, who is in addition to being so sweet, was also incredibly handsome. So it's sort of like everyone else is, is in a, a competition to be, you know, at at Jed's level.
2: I will say one thing that you include in the series that was funny in a really dark way was when jed made the film and somebody describes the scene of the baby as not being graphically violent and then you show it and it's tremendously graphically violent uh that was really something that he let him participate in that filmmaking in that way and that film was obviously kind of awful (laughs) in its own way um those films are strange
1: right Totally. Well, so that's, that's, that's Pat Hackett actually, who um, wrote the screenplay for Bad and also was the editor of the diaries, the person that Annie was calling every day. And it's interesting that you cite that um, sort of failure on her part to understand, you know, and then we, cut to seeing the baby literally come out of the window you know pat, <laughs> a fake
2: baby we should say
1: <laughs> a fake yes, yes it's a doll but nonetheless it's you know there are people who watch that and and it's it's shocking to see the baby fall down um so technically speaking maybe no one got hurt but the fact that pat sees it that way is interesting because by episode 6 i challenged pat on the idea that maybe she represented things with a certain skew
2: right. The diaries are the things that he talked to me about. And if he had wanted different things in the diaries, he would have had a different person doing them. You know, the question they should ask is like, well, what did he say to you? And then say, but don't write that in the diary. Those are the things. But I mean, that's between him and me.
1: And in fact, that that courses through the entire series, this idea that we're seeing things through different people's points of view. Andy's primarily, but everyone else has a different take too.
2: Right. So his relationship with John Gould was very different than his relationship with Jed. Um, John seemed to pass as straight or want to pass as straight. And Warhol seemed like he felt different when he was with John. Was that the case? I mean, that that trip up to New England, it seems like he is like playing with being in a different kind of life. Is that is that the case?
1: It's, it's so true. I think... You know, Andy says explicitly a few times in the diaries that he loves going out with John because it feels like a real date and he feels like John is macho and he can pass and that that somehow gives Andy a feeling of security. Um, I mean, literally in one instance, he's talking about meeting um, Donald Trump and Ivana uh, at, at that time with John and how he felt more comfortable in that context because John... Was a very athletic, um, again, seemingly macho man who, in this 1980s world that is dominated by this greed is good type of ethos um, and a preppy style, he was, you know, perfectly fit for. In fact, he literally appears in the preppy handbook. So Andy's connection to John is also a a way for him to fit into that society and in that particular cultural moment, um, even as he's with somebody who is gay and and who he has um, a, a, a secret love affair with.
2: Yeah. So John was also sometimes emotionally unavailable to Warhol and Andy didn't name him in the diaries and didn't talk about his death in the diaries. Can you just like talk about that, that distance and, and, and why that was?
1: So John was a, a young executive at Paramount Pictures, which was a job that was considered, you know, really hard to get and 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 really demanding, and he was very ambitious, and it was not possible for him to be out at that time and still have these professional aspirations. And Andy wanted to respect um, John's goals i think they had an understanding that their affair needed to be secret and i think that john you know many years younger than andy never could fully come to terms with what that relationship was like even though he did move into the townhouse um so he asked andy to not refer to him anymore in the diaries after he learned, after that trip to Cape Cod, which you cite, which is beautiful. And we see Andy in that New England classic, you know, preppy world. Waspy. Waspy, feeling comfortable, you know, child of immigrants from Pittsburgh, could never have dreamed before of of feeling like he would fit in. Um, He promises to John that he won't reference him. So he starts instead using a code word, which is Paramount. And Paramount also Becomes a logo that we see in a lot of Andy's paintings at that time, including the collaboration paintings with Jean Michel Basquiat, and so this is one of the most um, clear examples of the relationship getting sort of uh, processed into code words like Paramount and then appearing in the paintings in a way that you know is consistent with Andy's quotation of commercial trademarks and language but actually is not just a simplistic uh, brand name but actually represents the love one of the loves of his life john gould
2: hmm so let's move on to jean michel basquiat because um i'm curious why did he take him in
1: andy saw in jean michel i think the excitement of youth the energy of a new talent on the scene who was producing work that He felt was incredibly exciting, but also sort of provoking the culture at the time. You know, there was a lot of resistance to Jean Michel's genius. There there wasn't a scholarship to understand it. He had a lot of um, enemies. And Andy somehow sort of stepped in and was a, a, a very vigorous supporter of Jean Michel's and also was taken in by his charisma.
0: Jean-Michel came by the office to work out, and I told him I was going to Milan, and he said he'd go too. I didn't think he would come, but while I was waiting in line at the airport, he appeared. He's just so nutty, but cute and adorable.
1: You know, there are those who who talk about their relationship as possibly having a physical component. I, I never was able to confirm that in any way that I felt would be able to be included more than the 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 romantic um friendship that they had it was it was a friendship and a relationship that was full of love and and Andy as Glenn Ligon says, really seems like he was in love with Jean-Michel Basquiat.
2: That's what I picked up on for sure. And I mean, who wouldn't be? I mean, let's talk about a genius and a a beautiful genius uh, aside from that. I mean, some say that when they collaborated, it was Basquiat who was perhaps seeking approval from Warhol. But couldn't the same be said about Warhol if he was seeing this new relevance and this new genius uh, come up in the art world?
1: 100%. I mean, I think, you know, many artists of the time, Keith Haring, Kenny Scharf, Jean-Michel Basquiat viewed Andy as a role model, as somebody who was able to be a successful artist and be commercial, as we were discussing before. He set the mold for how to be a kind of rock star artist who wasn't limited to just the ivory tower of museums and and gallery shows, but was actually, um, you know, making his work for, for commercial exploitation. But... After that initial draw from, from Jean-Michel, Andy actually learned a lot from, from him too, from, from Basquiat. He picked up the brush. Um, for the first time in many years, be- at, at Jean Michel's uh, prodding, um, he experimented with more explicit commentary in his paintings after they collaborated, um, culminating in what some view as as maybe Andy's most important work, which is the Last Supper series, and in particular the Big C painting. He he started using imagery that was symbolic, like Jesus Christ and other references perhaps to the HIV AIDS crisis. So we can see the relationship between Andy and Jean-Michel as Andy is the mentor, the father figure, even the mother figure, which is what Hilton Alls suggests. But we can also see Jean-Michel as really teaching Andy a lot and maybe even being a star that shone brighter than Andy's, especially at that time.
2: So near the end of the documentary, Warhol is openly wondering whether he's creating art or whether he's just doing a job. Isn't it both?
1: Yes. That, that's really one of my favorite moments in all of the diaries where he says, I think about doing portraits. And do I really care if they look good? Or is it just a job?
0: And that's just a superficial thing. It's not life and death,
1: really. What is life about? You know, and then you wonder, does art come out of you or is it a product? And then he says, it's complicated. I mean, that that is just sort of, you know, this is coming from the man who created some of the most important images of the 20th century. He is addressing this, this key question, which is like, is art something that's like coming out of your soul and that exists platonically in the world that you capture? Or do you just, you work really hard at it? Um, I think Andy is completely an example of of the hybrid of the two, as you say, like it's, it's sort of both. Um, I don't know. I think you, you, there's something, there's something mystical about the creation of art also, and maybe there's a discipline to expressing it that, um, brings in the idea of the product and, and the mechanical. So, you know, I'm sure for, for every artist, they view it differently, but, but Andy was asking the question.
2: Hmm. You mentioned Chris Makos earlier. Um, Also near the end, you have a discussion with him about whether or not Warhol is a gay icon, and he seems to push back on you a little bit. Can you talk about that exchange?
1: So that is one of the more emotional moments, I think. What does the C mean? The big C refers to either Jesus Christ or gay cancer. Where do you get this impression? I'm just curious. I mean, if you look at all of Andy's work,
0: it's all about graphics, so... Maybe he just felt like there's an empty space here and the C looked good. I mean, one has to put the word
1: gay in here to come up with the gay cancer, don't they? Because I don't see a G anywhere here. After this, you know, six-episode journey of peeling back the layers of Andy and and the truth behind his performance, the depth of his love, um, I speak with Christopher about his influence on him. And, and his, and, and Andy's sexuality and, and Christopher sort of bristles and says, well, you know, I don't think anybody cares, you know, it's sort of like Liberace mm-hmm. um, people. We went to a show together, he and, he and Andy and, and, you know, the audience was so in love with the spectacle. I'm sure they didn't even, you know, care. It's like you decide is Liberace gay. And so I, I say to Christopher, you know, that's really not a choice for for the viewer, Andy's or or, or Liberace's sexuality is is a fact that that they should own, and that shouldn't be mitigated or 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 decided upon by the viewer they they own that their 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 own um identities and I think that it's this constant effort to please the the consumer or the viewer that Christopher seemed to have been stuck in that would lead him to say like, oh, well, it, you know, it doesn't matter. You just do what the, what the audience wants. And I think what the series is trying to accomplish is to say, you know, Andy's somebody who had to be coded and had to be hidden in order to pass and in order to succeed. And now hopefully, um, society has gotten to a point where we can appreciate him on his own terms and Mm -hmm. understand, you know, who he slept with in his own bed, you know, not to, um, sort of, uh, air dirty laundry or to like expose something, but rather to honor the beauty of that relationship and to further honor his artwork, which is enriched by understanding what his, what his life um, included in, 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 in a real way. But, but I will say one thing, if I could, that Christopher has since seen the series and he's been really moved. And, and I think, you know, there, there are some others who appear, um, who also talk about you know the fact that they had a boyfriend and and but they didn't want to sort of say they were gay and still don't sort of view themselves in that way and of course identity is 100% everyone's individual understanding and choice and, and no one should have to say anything they don't want to um, but I think Christopher in particular by being reminded of, of 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 his history with Andy has come out on the other side and now is is like really invigorated
2: yeah yeah is Andy Warhol's lasting reputation in the fine art world equal to his reputation in pop culture, his enormous reputation in pop culture?
1: I really think that they both feed each other, that Andy's standing in the fine art world or let's say his, his painting of um, The Electric Chair or of, of Marilyn Monroe you know, and there's so many metrics also to determine his standing. You know, auction prices are certainly one, but the scholarship is another. Um he recently had an exhibition at the Whitney Um the Philosophy of Andy Warhol from A to B and Back Again. And I think he is viewed as he's a bellwether in the in the art market. He is a, a sold-out subject of museum shows. There are so many books written about him, but all of that also increases as his role in the popular culture, particularly in anticipating social media, and in um, in innovating a concept of one having an avatar and and a, and a sort of like persona. All of that, his his work in doing that persona uh, amplification, has had a huge impact on his on his fine art work as well, and the way that we interpret it.
2: So what are you hoping viewers will take away from your series, you know, both people who are already familiar with Warhol and people, you know, like me who primarily knew him through his images and artwork?
1: Well, I would love for people to take away the idea that Andy was constructing a persona and that there was a human being behind it who was a loving person, not perfect, certainly um, a product of his time um but someone who constructed this this world of the factory and an approach to the culture through a very deliberate and human set of decisions many of which were informed by um homophobia and his and his effort to overcome that and to figure out a path forward in a world that was very hostile to him um i think that that just enriches the idea that, you know, like he asked, you know, is, is art uh, a product or does it come out of you? It's sort of both, but we see the discipline he took to craft that, that persona when we understand how human he was and, and how much pain he was in.
2: Well, I certainly took all that away and more from the Warhol Diaries. Andrew Rossi, thank you so much for joining me and talking about it.
1: Thank you. It's, it's so fun to talk about and I really appreciate it.
2: That's it for this week's episode. Thanks again to director Andrew Rossi. For more of my takes, check out my other podcast, Crime Writers On. Each week on that show, we break down the latest in true crime documentaries, films, podcasts, and pop culture. If you like You Can't Make This Up, please rate and review this show and share it with your friends. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. And make sure to subscribe to the show to stay tuned for all new episodes. Our music is by Kelly Mack and Netflix Music Lab. You Can't Make This Up is a production of Netflix. I'm Rebecca Lavoie. Thanks so much for listening.